Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to episode number nine of the Marine Layer podcast with TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, we have New Year's resolutions for the Mariners. I'm going to go to the gym more. I don't know what Lyle's is, but we have a couple of them specifically for the Mariners. We'll take a look around baseball with our MLB wraparound. Sean Murphy signs an extension with the Braves. Nathan Avaldi joins the Texas Rangers. He's now in the American League West. We will close out the show with Speak Your Mind. With that, let's get it rolling. And we welcome you into episode number nine of the Marine Layer podcast here on Tuesday, January 3rd. Happy New Year, Lyle Goldstein. Happy New Year to you too. I got to tell you, you know how we started off the new year? By opening up Twitter, seeing a good old controversial MLB player rankings today and seeing Julio Julio, five or six spots ahead of Jordan Alvarez. Like, (laughs) is that wrong? It's not wrong. I don't know. I mean, okay. So objectively, I might put Jordan above Julio for now, but we saw Astros fans in typical fashion screaming about it on Twitter. So we took the opportunity to post about it on Twitter because we said, you know what? Let's just add fuel to the fire here. Well, if you think about it, Julio plays center field, right? That alone makes you more valuable on a top 100 players list. I mean, I guess if you're just ranking hitters, I mean, sure. Yeah. I mean, Jordan's probably top five in all of baseball in that category, but he's also, you know, big lumbering corner outfielder who plays in a, in a, in a tiny left field and is, you know, fine in the outfield. So, I mean, you can ding him on that. Oh, yeah. Like, there's an argument. I just thought it was hilarious to see Astros fans get so mad about it. And again, the account that put it out, some of their stuff can be controversial when they put out these rankings sometimes. But you know what? It was in our favor. So we took the opportunity to capitalize on it. I do love those rankings, especially now. It's the It's been pretty dead these last few weeks in terms of baseball news. So I, th- I really think it's a perfect opportunity for that account to be like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to make this nice looking graphic and I might swap a few players around there. I think he had Anthony Rendon as a top 50 player, right? Was it top 50, even though he hasn't like played in three years, essentially. And uh, it really, it really kicks the beehive and I get a good laugh at that. But was I right on that Rendon thing? He was somewhere in that top 100, and I don't even know if I'd put him in there at this point. I mean, when he's healthy, sure, but he hasn't been on the field. No, he hasn't. You know, last lasting image of good Anthony Rendon was the World Series. And, you know, that was three seasons ago now. So, I don't know. I do appreciate a good list, though. I think maybe if our editing skills ever get good enough, we just should make some clickbait. I think that would be really funny. I think that would be good. Anyways, new year, new Mariners. I like to say new me as well, 
Uh, I was kind of joking about the gym. I already like to try and go to the gym a little bit more as you do. Um, so it's not necessarily my new year's resolution. I honestly, to be honest, don't even have a new year's resolution for this year. Not like a, a specific one thing. There's things I would, I'd like to, you know, get better at, but I don't know how it is for you, Lyle, but I, I really have trouble just picking one thing. Yeah. I feel like I'm not much of a resolutions person. I guess I'm not flip the calendar, flip your personality type of guy. I guess if there's something I want to work on within the course of the year, I do it at the time being. I'm not the person on January 1st. I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make sure this happens. I'm going to execute it like this. Yeah, I'm not big on the whole resolutions thing, especially on January 1st. It just seems like procrastination 101. Especially because people don't keep up with it. Like there's a lot of people that say they're going to go to the gym as their New Year's resolution. And then by Valentine's Day, they've given it up. While I was at the gym yesterday on January 2nd, I think I was one of maybe like six people in there. So I, I think people are really hammering home their their resolutions. I think they're doing a great, a great job. But the Mariners, we have a couple of New Year's resolutions for them, which would make their 2023 season that much better. Lyle, what is your New Year's resolution for the Seattle Mariners? Oh, you know, I've been itching to talk about this. And there's like no easier way to rile me up than get me going, getting me going on this topic. But this one's pretty easy for me. And I would think for any Mariners fan, this would be toward the top of the list. But my New Year's resolution for the Mariners in 2023 is Jared Kelnick turns into the player he was always projected to be. We can break this down here in this segment because I've got a lot of notes on why I think it can happen and why it's it's certainly in the cards. It's by no means you know, down the drain. But that's my resolution because if he's added to this lineup or his production is added to this lineup in the sense of, he turns into the player that we know he can be and that analysts, scouts, writers, players, everybody thought he could originally be. That makes this team drastically different. I don't think I've ever seen you more excited to go to a ballpark than when we were to go see his debut. I mean, that's like, that is the kind of player he was projected to be. What we see in Julio now in center field is what we thought Jared was going to do when he came up. Even as if it's unfair to him, I think that's what we expected. And he warranted that. This is the thing that kind of gets me when people just trash on him on Twitter, which I can't stand, by the way. He was elite enough in the minor leagues to get called up at 21 years old because he was a top five prospect. And yeah, it's been a tough transition. I'm not going to sit here and say I've been thrilled with his play through the first two years. But if he was still a prospect at 23 years old where he's currently sitting, and he had never touched the majors, everybody would be raving about him still. And he'd probably still be the Mariners' top prospect. But because he's played in the majors, and at an age where he's still two years too young to run a car, he hasn't figured it out yet, everybody's ready to trade this guy away or throw him aside. And and I can't understand it, because if he can hit his peak, and I really think that this year might be the year that he starts to unlock some of that, that changes this offense entirely. It does. It lengthens the lineup. It gives you that guy, you know, in the middle to bottom of your lineup from the left side, which if you think about it, the Mariners, you know, in terms of left-handed bats, it's Cal Raleigh, 
And then, well, you thought last year Jesse Winker was going to be that guy from the left side of the plate to really unlock something for the Mariners, but he never did. And you're 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 looking for that other guy from the left side of the plate to really, really break out. And and if Jared were to do it at age 23, he'll turn 24 this season. You know, playing the defense he did in left field, we you know hated watching his defense when he came up as a rookie. It was just. It was just a mess overall. I think he ended up being graded as the worst defensive center fielder in baseball. But you shift him over to left. He plays excellent defensive left field with Teoscar Hernandez in right field. And he puts up, what, a 120 WRC plus this year and shows good speed on the base pads and good gap-to-gap power with, you know, 20 home runs over the fence. That's what you wanted from this guy when you called him up. No doubt. And I'm going to pull up this tweet here because you mentioned his defense, because you're right. It got really good once he moved to the corners because he played good right field defense too. But take a look at this stat. This is from Maverick or Mariners Mav on Twitter. He tweeted this out a while back. Jared Kelnick had only 170 plate appearances in games where he played the outfield this year. In that time, he put up a defensive war of 2.7. Now, if you change that to 600 plate appearances, That'd be a 9.5 defensive war, which would rank fifth among all outfielders in Major League Baseball. So the defense is there. And then there's another Mariners Twitter account named Gravel, who does some really good work. He's talked a lot about he thinks Jared and Cal are actually similar hitters. If Kelmick puts up Cal Raleigh's offensive season from last year in 2022 and plays that type of defense, that's an all-star. That's exactly what they could have hoped for. Yeah, that is. And I don't know if I totally agree with that, if they're the the same time of hitter, because here's how I think about it. I think what Jared has been trying to do in the major leagues is what Cal Raleigh has successfully done at the plate, which is a lot of power, a lot of exit velocity, a lot of extra base hits and good defense. But when Jared was coming up through the minors, that's not necessarily who he was. And I think the big reason for Jared's struggles is because he got away from what he was as a hitter, which was a guy with gap power, a K- would hit the ball over the wall 20 times a year, be good on the base paths, steal some bases, and play good defense in the outfield. He got away from it a little bit once he got to the major leagues. Uh, there, you know, a lot of talk about you know his time working with Mark McGuire and, and his agent and and a whole bunch of other things in his ear about how, what kind of hitter he was, about him bulking up and really swinging hard for the fences and getting away from what he was at the plate, which is when he got drafted as a high school player. It's just, hey, this guy who has great bat-to-ball skills, spraying the ball around the yard, playing good defense, and operating on the base paths. That's the successful game plan for Jared Kelnick, I think, because when he's tried to do the other stuff, yeah, I mean, he's had flashes here and there, but, you know, Jared doesn't hasn't really had an identity at the plate. And if he finds that identity back, what made him so successful in the minors and what made him a top five prospect, I think that's really what leads the way for him. And you started to see that a little bit in the final couple weeks of the season when he got recalled this year. I mean, the end of his seasons in both 2021 and 2022, he really started to unlock some stuff. And I think 2022, even more so than 21 despite his numbers in September of 2021 being a little bit better. Like in 2022, his final couple weeks, he put up a WRC plus of 109. But with that, he was incredibly unlucky at the plate in those couple weeks, despite putting up some real production. But to your point about using the gaps more, 
he started to do that. And in fact, he had a couple home runs that went the opposite way just from putting good swings on the ball. So that's a big reason I think in 2023, he could really start to have some things click, especially because you've heard Jerry DePoto talk about how in 2022, those final five weeks between Tacoma and the majors, it was the biggest strides that he's made at the plate. They said since being a member of the organization. And again, he's 23 years old. I'm going to throw this stat out there because I've tried to use it a lot. Aaron Judge debuted at 24. He was more than a year older when he debuted than Kelnick is right now. Aaron Judge put up a 61 OPS plus in his first season at 24 years old. That was in 2016. It was bad. And I got to tell you, it's a really good thing the Yankees gave up on that guy because he's never amounted to anything. So for all the fans that like to just drag him through the mud on social media, say he's never going to pan out, he's 23. Again, imagine if they had listened to the Yankees had listened to Yankees fans with Aaron Judge when he struggled his first time up when he was older than Kelnick was. I'm sure the uh, the takes on New York sports radio were great after he got sent down. Oh, this guy <laughs> stinks. He's too big to hit. Exactly. And and uh. again, I just think that development is not linear. Yes, he did not figure things out and has not figured things out as fast as Julio has. That doesn't mean he still can't be a great player. The book is out on his career. He's still incredibly young. He's played less than a full season of games. Like, I just think the breaks have to be pumped a little bit on what people's vision of him is. Because if it all clicks, and again, he really started to take some walks the last few weeks of the season too. His approach got better. He laid off those change-ups low in a way, which he struggled with a lot of the time. I think you're going to see some big jumps in 2023. So if he can be the player that he was once pro- once projected to be, or even somewhat close to it, the Mariners offense gets that much better. I think all you have to do really, Lyle, is just look at his strikeout rates in the minors. Cause that's another thing he did really well. I was talking about just being a good athlete and spraying the ball around the yard. He also just didn't strike out that much when he was in the minors. And that's what made him so valuable. The the bat to ball skills is just so important. Like his minor league numbers. I mean, I'm just going to read off some seasons, 19 and a half percent, 21 and a half percent, 20 and a half percent, 25 and a half percent, 18 and a half percent, 15 percent. And then his two major league, you know, stints, 28% and 33%. I mean, it's just enormous. And if that gets cut down, then I think we start seeing the Jared Kelnick that we always envision. I think that's key, right? You know, we we have embraced the fact that great players, if they're going to slug a lot, will strike out. However, as we we've mentioned, like, we just don't necessarily think that's who Jared is. He's not a Eugenio Suarez who can get away with striking out 30% of the time because he's got that 35 homer power. That's not really, at least at this point of his career, the player that Jared is. And I think it just, it's to get back to the player he was that made him such a good prospect. And that's what I'm also so excited to see. My New Year's resolution for the Mariners, Lyle, was the guy who was called up alongside Jared on that May day, I forget exactly which day in May it was. Well, you would remember which day was it? I believe it was May 13th because it was Kelnick, Logan Gilbert, Paul Seawald all on the same day. Oh, you guessed it, Lyle. Mine was Paul Seawald. No, I'm kidding. No. I'm kidding. 
My New Year's resolution for the Seattle Mariners is for Logan Gilbert to take that third-year step forward. It was a mixed bag for Logan Gilbert this year, even though you know, I didn't even realize finished with a 3-2 ERA, which you look at that and you, you said at the beginning of the year, okay, Logan Gilbert in his second major league season is going to throw 185 innings with a 3-2 ERA, make all 32 of his starts, and record three wins above replacement. That sounds pretty good to me. Well, we'll take it. But I think there's a little bit more in there for Logan Gilbert if he refines the pitches that we think he should over the course of this season. I think Logan Gilbert can take that next step forward this season. He's a guy, honestly, that I think people aren't talking about quite as much. I think we hear just so much about George Kirby now. He's the shiny new toy. But Logan Gilbert was a higher-ranked prospect than George Kirby was. Coming up in the minors, he was the number 28 prospect in baseball when he was called up by MLB Pipeline. That that upside is there in Logan's right arm. And while we haven't seen everything we'd needed to from Logan, I think a third-year breakout would make the Mariners ecstatic. How much of it do you feel is fatigue and getting adjusted to a big league workload over his first couple of seasons? Because you look at both of his first two years in the big leagues, He has struggled in the second half, specifically that month of August has totally tanked his ERA two years in a row, along with the idea that you look at 2022, he was the pitcher of the month in April. He put up an 040 ERA. He was unreal. But then August and that second half of the season kind of started to fall off a little bit. He picked it back up in September. That was the good news. But how much of it do you feel is fatigue? It could be it. It could, but that September makes me think it's not. Well, he had a two ERA in September in 36 innings, his second highest inning load of any month. It, like, it's it's like, okay, so you were tired in August, but you managed to throw almost 40 innings in September with a two ERA. I mean, maybe a little bit, but I think it's all about adjustment. There, there's a couple things with Logan that we look at. And I think most of it has to do with the fact he doesn't have a true good secondary pitch. He likes his curveball. He like well, sorry, let me rephrase that. He liked his curveball a lot in the minors. He's really started to shy away from it when he's gotten to the big leagues, and he's sort of leaned on his slider a little bit more. But it hasn't been really an elite pitch, and his fastball can get hit around a lot. His fastball was the pitch he got a majority of his strikeouts with, but it's also the pitch that got hit the hardest, had the highest, you know, hit it most in the air, hit it the hardest, like a 92 average exit velocity as fastball, which is pretty bad, but not unusual for a guy who throws 96. Usually when you throw the ball hard, the ball also gets hit hard when they make contact. So, I mean, that's sort of a skewed number a little bit. But I think the big key for Logan is he really just needs that better. He needs that, Number two out pitch is what he really needs. And I, then I think he can sort of bail himself out of some of these situations where he can't put guys away. There were a lot of times in that rookie year where he just didn't have any of his three off-speed pitches on a certain night, and he would have to get through games solely relying on his fastball. You didn't see that as much with him in 2022, and that was the good news. He definitely took jumps. But yeah, you're right. There were times where His off-speed pitches just weren't up to the level that they can be when Logan's at his peak. I'll tell you, the team always talks about they really like his changeup. I know he prefers both of his breaking balls, but you've heard Jerry DePoto talk a lot about they really like Logan Gilbert's changeup. 
He just doesn't throw it a whole ton. So it's kind of on the back end of his arsenal. But that's another pitch that when he throws it, it works for him. And I'd like him to throw it a little bit more. He threw it 241 times this year at, you know, for uh, for comparison, threw his fastball 1600 times. So, you know, it's by percentage, it's just not really there. But that's sort of a pitch that, again, you want. He doesn't have any any of his off-speed pitches, like a, a, like a really elite whiff percentage, like whiff meaning swing and miss which would also correlate to strikeouts. You know, for example, like a guy like Robbie Ray gets hit pretty hard, but his slider still has like a whiff rate of over 40% when he throws it because guys just struggle to hit it. So if Robbie, you know, really needs that out, he can just go to that slider and eventually he'll get a swing and miss on it because he knows the bite on it is there. But there's not as much bite on Logan's pitches, which can lead to trouble. He's third percentile in hard hit rate and fifth in average exit velocity, which is... Again, just not really sustainable and why you think, yeah, hey, I'm trusting this guy to develop that secondary pitch and bring down those hard hit balls. Because most of the guys that had those same peripherals as Logan didn't have a 3-2 ERA. So that, that, that showed how he was able to sort of get around that. Yeah, if you look at his baseball savant page, there's a lot of blue in there with those numbers, which for those who are not familiar with baseball savant, if you're in the red, that means good. If you're in the blue, that means not so good. There is a lot of blue on Logan's page. And then when you look at some of his numbers, like his FIP, his XERA, they were higher than his earned run average. And what those stats tell you is Logan probably got a little bit lucky throughout the course of a year with some quality defense behind him. So you're right. He absolutely has the ability to be a top-end starter, and we've seen it plenty. But just doing it on a more consistent basis. If he can do that in 2023 with how Kirby's progressed, with how good we already know Luis Castillo is. Robbie Ray, at the very least, can be a quality start guy. This Mariners rotation can be that much better if Logan can take another step. And there's nothing like you look at with Logan to say that he can't do it. I think there, you know, there's some mental things in there, probably. Usually that is the way it is with most pitchers. There's some grit purposes. There's, you know, just his feel for the baseball. And you know, it, it could be any number of those things. I mean, hell, Logan could come out this year and start throwing a splitter and be the nastiest pitcher on earth. So w- we don't know. But again, I think the, the the big key, I did, I wrote down a to-do list for Logan here to achieve his New Year's resolution. So again, I, I mentioned the hard hit rate, um, develop the, a true out pitch, could be any one of the current pitches he has. Throw over 200 innings, strike out 200 batters. That would be quite an achievement for Logan. I think if Logan reaches 200 innings, he's probably going to strike out 200 batters because his career K for nine is literally about nine. So that makes it pretty easy. Also want to note a couple guys who had third year breakouts, just some guys you wouldn't, you know, you'd know, but you're like, oh, hey, third season. I mean, he really just found it after a good to average second year in the baseball three guys a guy who we're going to talk about later on this podcast uh Corey Kluber in his third full season won a Cy Young after being eh, okay his first two seasons in Cleveland Robbie Ray his own teammate was eh, okay with the Diamondbacks had a 2.89 ERA in 2017, his third full MLB season, and he made the All-Star game. One final guy, 
Blake Snell had a 1.89 ERA at age 25, his third full season in Tampa Bay. So it's not like a direct correlation that a third year is a ultimate breakout year for pitchers. Some guys are great right away. Some guys take until their fifth, sixth season to really turn into a great pitcher. But also there's an example like there is an option there for a third-year starter to take that leap forward. And I think that would be mighty important for Logan Gilbert this year. He does all that. I'll tell you what. That's what you call unlocking Walter. Oh, I'm down. I'm down. He, he I just... The one thing he already has done to embrace this next step forward is embracing Walter because I think it suits him. Oh, it, it suits him. For those who don't know, Logan Gilbert was given an alter ego by, I believe, his teammates. They call him Walter. And I think the reason they gave him the nickname is because it was his alter ego, but it usually resulted in wins. So with the W, I believe that's where it stemmed from. Yeah, I mean... I don't remember exactly who came up with it, but he's, I know off the mound, he's normally like this just big, quiet guy. But when he gets on the mound, I mean, he, like every, every pitcher, you know, it's like, don't talk to me on my start day. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. So that'd be good. He's, he's locked in and we certainly saw it in flashes during 2022 and points of 2021 too. So he does it for a more consistent, on a more consistent basis in 23 I think that'll be pretty exciting. So those, we, oh, go ahead. If, sorry, I was going to say, just like just thinking about it from a, a big picture perspective, right? The 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 guys everyone likes to talk about when it's like future, it's like okay, Castillo, Kirby. I mean, and you have Ray under contract for four more years. I mean, I just feel like Logan gets kind of forgot a little bit because it's like, well, he's not striking out the world. He's you know he gets hit kind of hard a lot, and I think it's just a lot of people just overlooking, and he can just almost jump up on people this year. And I I think that would just be great. It would be great because again, there's been times where he's looked like the best arm on the roster. He's just got to do it a little bit more consistently. And just to clarify, we're not saying Logan's been bad by any means. He's been very good. We just know he can be even better. And if he can do that, if the two former roommates, Jared Kelnick and Logan Gilbert, both hit their potential here in 2023, the Mariners all of a sudden, you could see that win total up a significant amount. Before we move on to our next segment, we asked you guys, the listeners, on our social media accounts this week. We said, what are your New Year's resolutions for the Mariners in 2023? Because we wanted to hear from you guys, which by the way, if you're not following all of our social media channels yet, you can do that over at Marine Layer Pod, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube. We got a few answers. We'll read a couple of them. We got one from Ryan that says, 2023 Mariners New Year's resolution Julio for MVP. Well, not only would I be very all in for that, it doesn't feel that out of the question either. No, I mean, what does it take? Mm, probably to, a division win in, in 45 homers, you think? Something like that. I think Jeff Passan put the AL MVP award well when he talked about it. I think he stated it well when he talked about it a few weeks ago. He said that, it's basically going to be Shohei Otani award, Shohei Otani's award to lose every single year, and somebody's going to have to do something really special to beat him out. And I think that's very true, but I also think Julio could do it. I think there's going to be some voter fatigue, though, because before Shohei, I mean, it was also Mike Trout's award to lose, and he didn't win it necessarily every year. He would get hurt, 
And not saying it's going to happen to Shohei, but he does play more baseball than any other player on earth. So it's always the opportunity, right? And if Shohei misses a month, then that leaves the door wide open for uh, for Julio. Yeah, it does. And our other answer that we, another answer that we got, the last one we're going to read out here on the podcast from Jordan, he said, successfully execute a suicide squeeze. Now, TJ, we haven't had many opportunities on this podcast to touch on this subject yet, but the more people start to listen to us, the more they're going to learn. We're big proponents of banning the bunt in baseball. So all respect to Jordan. If you're a big small ball guy, power to you. I personally have no interest in watching any suicide squeeze plays. I mean, unless like Evan White's up there, or I would say Abe at this rate, but at least suicide squeezes are like fun. At least you didn't say execute a sacrifice bun. In that case, it'd be like, well, we're going to take this take and throw it over there in the trash can. I guess, you know, I guess. there's a little, there's a little, little bit of spice and, you know, they're trying to have a little bit of fun with it. I, was there even a suicide squeeze attempted in the whole league last year? It's, it's a lost art. And I think there's a reason for it because sure, if you've got a Sam Haggerty up there, or like you said, Evan White or a bench player, and you think it could work with a fast runner on base, like if Dylan Moore's at third or if Julio's at third, sure. But you look at the Mariners lineup. If you've got Julio up there, Ty, Gino, Cal, the list goes on. Do you want any of those guys losing in a bat for dropping down a bunt and pushing a ball two feet in front of the plate? Bunch of guys that have not been asked to bunt in probably at least half a decade. Right. <laughs> it's not not like they're practicing it. And you're like, okay, so now we're going to send a guy stealing home from third base and a guy's going to be throwing 97 miles an hour at you, and we're going to ask you to turn around and not pop this bunt up or miss it. It's got to be a perfect bunt right out in front of the plate. No pressure, because if you mess up, we're not scoring a run. Yeah, great idea. No, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'd rather them just swing. Yeah, I'm out on that. Again, if you're if you're a small ball fan, that's all fine and good. However, this podcast is about elevating and celebrating. I'm down. All right, let's transition into our MLB wraparound here. That was a good segment of New Year's resolutions, but now to look across Major League Baseball. Our first segment, TJ, Sean Murphy. After being traded from the A's to the Atlanta Braves, he signed an extension with Atlanta this past week. Six years for $73 million with a club option in 2029 that would make the contract seven years for $88 million. The Braves did it again. It just seems really low. I I, I know the guarantee, the total guarantee is $88 million if that option is exercised. That seems really low. Because Sean Murphy was worth five wins this year. And if you do the the money factor that a win is worth about $8 million, Sean Murphy was worth $40 million to the Oakland A's this year. And you're telling me he's going to, he would, he he only needs to put up, uh, the Braves only need him to put up like 12 wins for this, con- no, not even 12, 11 wins 
for this contract to pay itself off. That doesn't seem like too much from a guy who's pretty young, a good hitter, you know, about 20% better than league average that he did this year. I think he had a, uh, yeah, a 122 WRC plus this year. He's a plus framer, a solid defender behind the plate. He's about league average and defensive runs saved, but framing is where his true value comes from. And he's going to be hitting behind just a slew of more guys, of guys. I mean, I just can't believe the number. It's just so bizarre. How, like, how do they do, how do they do this? I, I don't get it. With every guy too, like every fucking Braves contract is like this. And I don't get it. I like, just because some of these players are getting their arbitration years bought out, they take these, these extensions. But if you play that well, you're going to get more money than your extension in arbitration anyway. So I never understand how they pull off these deals and how they've done it with every player. To your point, Sean Murphy is a defense first catcher, but he's a defense first catcher that also ranked fourth in all of baseball or all of baseball among catchers in WRC plus by war. He was the second best catcher in all of baseball this year. You know who the most valuable catcher was? It was JT Real Muto with the Phillies. He's on a five-year, $115 million contract. So he's making a little over $23 bucks a year. I'd say that's a little more compared to the six-year, $73 million extension that Sean Murphy just got as the second-best catcher in all of baseball. I'm just trying to wonder how this like negotiating process goes. It's like, thankful to already be getting an extension, so I'll accept whatever number you offer me? Like... We're, we're, this is the one time where I'm going to ask, where is Scott Boris? Where, like, where is he? he? He would never let his clients sign these deals. It, it's just absurd. It, are any of these Braves deals like actually like above market? Austin Riley, Michael Harris, Matt Olson, Murphy, Strider, Acuna, Grissom, uh, who that, that's just club control, Albies, Kyle Wright, Max Fried, all under contract through 2024. All of them. Riley and Olsen are making the most money among those guys. I still don't think those guys are being paid market value. I mean, Austin Riley is legitimately one of the best players in baseball at this point. I think he's being underpaid. I'll tell you the worst contract of all of them. A lot of people used to think it was Ozzy Albies, and for a while there, maybe it was. I think it's Michael Harris. You're making, on average, $9 bucks a year on that contract. Again, in arbitration, if he keeps playing like this, he would make more than that in his arbitration years, and then he'd hit free agency. I have no clue how Alex Anthopoulos and the Braves get away with these deals, but it works for them, and they seem to convince every player to sign one. I'll tell you what, I'm pretty jealous as a Mariners fan watching what the Braves do, because Cal Raleigh, while we're on the topic of catchers, who happens to be a Scott Boris guy, I guarantee you if he signs an extension with Seattle, it's it's not going to be six years for $73 million. Especially how the free agent market was this offseason. If you, how much, it's not like that even hard to figure. If you put all of those guys who signed extensions on the free agent market this offseason, they would have gotten deals 50% higher, at least. Right? Definitely. And I'm looking at this Harris one. I mean, you're, you're right. It's, it's not great. But, it, you know, three of those years, he was going to, or five of those years, he was going to be under club control regardless. So balances out a little bit. 
and he's only he's not missing too much of free agency. I mean, he'll still be a free agent when he's well, two club options. He'll be a, a free agent when he's 32 years old, which is not terrible for him, but man, I think we we there was this like roller coaster of this. First it was like, okay, what is Ronald Acuña doing? Second, what is Ozzy Albies doing? And now we're to the third wheel of the spoke or the third spoke of the wheel. And what is Michael Harris doing? Just to think, it's like it's it's okay to bet on yourself, guys. I know ninety million dollars is a lot, but Michael Harris puts together. What did you say? So he has five. He would have five years left until he's a free agent. Say you're good to elite for three of those years. You don't even have to be great all five years. I mean, you're talking. You know, good center field defense. He's going to net at least one hundred and eighty million dollars at least, right? I mean, do I think Julio's a better player than Michael Harris? Yeah. But I'm going to be honest. You compare their rookie seasons, they're not that different. And Michael Harris played less games. If Michael Harris had started the year on the Braves roster, their numbers might look fairly similar. Again, Michael Harris's contract is going to average about $9 million a year. Julio Rodriguez has the chance to make the most money in American sports among all contracts if that $470 million all maxes out. Well, this guy didn't really get underpaid. Next guy we'll talk about, Nathan Evaldi, uh, is a Texas Ranger. Two years, $34 million to go to Arlington. And the Texas Rangers rotation is good? Yeah, I got to be honest. I didn't want to believe it for a while. But I think I'm finally ready to say if the Rangers rotation stays healthy, I think they might be competitive. It is a very good rotation if everybody stays healthy. I mean, it's DeGrom, Martin Perez, who was unbelievable last year, Avaldi, Andrew Heaney. It's a really, really good rotation. Oh, and then John Gray. That's a good starting five. Yeah, Martin Perez unlocked some stuff this year. Andrew Heaney did as well this past season. And Evaldi, you know, throws 97, 98, and he's had some really good seasons with the Red Sox. So it's not a out of the question for, you know, the Rangers to... They, they, I don't think they're a better rotation than the Mariners per se because they're older. I think they're also more injury prone. But it, it's not too absurd to say that they would close the gap on the Mariners a little bit in terms of rotation. I still think the Astros would have the best rotation in the American league West, probably the best rotation in baseball. I don't think that's a question. Watch the world series run. It's pretty obvious. Just had to watch the games, but the Mariners were second. And now the Rangers being healthy. I mean, that uh, there's not an easy day when you, you would face the Rangers with those five. Yeah. Especially if everybody stays healthy. Now, Avaldi wasn't great last year. He wasn't bad by any means, but he had a 435, a 431 XERA. His ERA was a little bit better at 387. And I think he got a decent amount of money being the best starting pitcher left on the market at 17 million bucks a year. But that also is the going rate for decent to good starting pitchers in free agency a lot of the time these days. And we know he can also be better than that. So the Rangers, credit to them, they're doing a lot more than their division rival the A's are doing when you're talking when you're talking about going for it they're doing a lot more than a lot of teams are doing when you're talking about going for it so are they going to make the playoffs it's to be seen but they're trying to win and that's a lot more than a lot of teams can say 
Remember, Lyle, baseball is not profitable. It's never profitable. Ever. <laughs> well, to move on to our last guy here, after Evaldi signed with the Rangers, he leaves the Red Sox. Boston fills that slot somewhat as they bring in Corey Kluber on a one-year deal. He has a club option in 2024, but he's only guaranteed one year. They needed to do something with Evaldi leaving, and I guess this is something since Kluber was healthy all of 2022. I think it's just kind of puzzling what the Red Sox are doing. I got the notification earlier today that the Red Sox endeavors <laughs> agreed to avoid arbitration with a contract. But everything we see from Boston now is like that they're like cutting corners, it seems like, with everything. It's just so strange. They let Bogarts walk. They trade Mookie to save money. And everyone, it seems, is like so paranoid that they're going to they're gonna let Rafi Devers walk or trade him. So, you know, when, when it comes to signing, I mean, I feel like Red Sox fans would have been perfectly happy just re-signing Nathan Avaldi for a little bit more. But, you know, the Red Sox decided, well, I guess we can get Kluber on a $10 million contract instead of you know, probably 17 plus for Nathan Avaldi, and he ends up going to Texas instead. It was interesting, I guess, with Kluber this year, he he was okay with the rates, but, you know, he, he sort of transformed himself. Less of a strikeout pitcher, pitcher more of a contact guy, uh, and threw his cutter a ton. He hadn't, he had started using his cutter a little bit, but he threw his cutter more than any other pitch, and 2022 20, through at about 34% of the time. I don't know if that works at Fenway Park. Maybe it will if you just pitch to contact and Kluber not really going to blow you away anymore. So in the tough American League East, uh, don't don't really know Boston. I'm not sure. He didn't have a great year as a whole last year. He didn't put up a full win. His XERA was about four. And he put up a 4.34 ERA. That Red Sox rotation, I got to tell you, they went out and spent some money on Yoshida this offseason to add to their offense and I know they lost Bogarts. But you look at the Red Sox rotation right now. It's Corey Kluber, Nick Pavetta, if he's healthy, Chris Sale, but they've talked about trying to shop him around. James Paxton if he's healthy, but he didn't pitch at all last year. And after that, Tanner Houck, Brian Bello. I mean, this does not sound like a rotation that's going to be pitching in the postseason. It sounds like I don't like know a, what they're doing with their offseason. Going to be honest, sounds like the Red Sox are finishing in last. That's what it sounds like. I mean, what? Who are you t- like? What team are you putting them over in the AL East with the with the current you know set of players they have? You can't. I I, yeah. I would I would take all of the four other teams to finish above Boston right now. I know. And it's like it's just puzzling. I mean, they have the resources. They have, could have signed Bogarts. Well, not like they don't have the money to sign Xander Bogarts, but and you know, they could have gone after a guy in the they really wanted to shore up their rotation. They could have gone after one of the free agents too. I know Fenway's not a great pitcher's park, but you know, it's Boston. You can pay guys and they haven't so it's kind of strange. You know what else is strange? Have we heard anything from Correa? Who in the world knows what's going on with that? Ken Rosenthal this afternoon said that 
his contract still being worked on, but all of a sudden it sounds like whatever his new contract is going to be is going to be drastically different than the 12 years, $315 million he was originally supposed to get with the Mets. So it sounds like there's some progression, but it also sounds like he's going to lose some money. Yeah. I mean, man, Jerry, two years, a hundred million dollars. Just, just do it. Just do it. Three for 120, like we said on one of our last episodes. I'm down. And if he wants higher per year, okay, fine. We'll knock a year off and we'll knock up the the average annual value. That sounds fine. I, I don't see why not. It's just so puzzling. I mean, it's been radio silence for two weeks. It doesn't they, make any they, sense. They agree to the deal. And then a couple of days later, I mean, it comes out that the same issue popped up and we have heard nothing. Absolutely nothing. I mean, how many other teams are now throwing in offers to, to Scott Boris, do we think? Well, that's what I'm wondering. Is there a chance Correa could actually sign with a third team this offseason? Well, that would be a first, to say the least. I mean, a guy agreeing to a contract with three separate teams. I mean, the like the only thing I can like think about, do you remember that in the NBA, DeAndre Jordan... I think in 2015 agreed to sign with the Mavericks and it took the Clippers to go like sit in his house and lock themselves inside to force him to change his mind. I mean, that's what it kind of feels like in a sense right now where it's except, you know, Carlos Correa and Scott Boris are locking themselves in their own house because they're, you know, trying to get Correa paid more and teams don't like the medicals they see. It's just so puzzling. We don't see this. Yeah, you don't. I don't know what's going to happen. If I had to guess, he's going to stay a Met. But we've never seen a situation like this where there is this much holdup with a contract. And I understand why, because the contract is so long for a player that you want to invest a lot of money in. But to have the potential that he could agree to a deal with a third different team in an offseason, I mean... You could write a book about that. Yeah, I don't know. I I think at this point, he's just got to sign something shorter. Just don't think he's going to get that long-term deal. Not with this. Two separate teams telling him no, essentially, with the medicals. It's bizarre, but sometimes that's just how it is. And if I'm Correa, like, all right. I mean, if 180 over, you know, four years, 180 over five years, I mean, I guess if that's what it's going to take. As we wrap this up, will he be signed or not when we record our next podcast? No. Still no? Wouldn't we have heard something? We would have heard something. He posted something a little bit, not cryptic, but maybe telling on Instagram today. He took a picture with his kid and it said, like, taking my kid to work with me today. And he had a glove in his hand. I don't know if that signals to a deal potentially being close to getting done. Some people were no. speculating that maybe it is. Because regardless of if he's under contract or not, he's still going to go train, right? Yeah, he would. So that's probably, I think that's what he was doing. It, unless he's, he took a picture of himself like with Steve Cohn and Scott Boris in the same room hammering out contract details. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's strange. We haven't seen it. Yeah, I agree. And we will close out this episode 
Finally, time for Speak Your Mind. Speak your mind, Spock. That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. And it was an entertaining week with uh, Lyle and I back for New Year's. Did allow us an opportunity uh, to get our first, uh, I believe our first Speak Your Mind subject. I actually know. I think we're going to save that one for last. But Lyle, I have an idea of what you're going to do. So I'm going to let you go first. What is on your mind? There's a couple things this week. But to start out, as two people who are also big college football fans, I was just so thrilled to finally have two good games in the college football playoff this year. I mean, those are the best duo of games we've gotten in the playoff in the semifinals since the new format started. And I know it's been less than a decade since we've had the new format. But finally, I mean, these games are always blowouts, at least one of them. And finally, we got two really, really entertaining games with teams that matched up pretty competitively against each other. And I was pretty happy to sit there and watch it. Seems like we get a good game on the semifinal weekend, about one every other year, it seems like. Which is kind of strange to think about, but that's really how it's been. I mean, it's unfortunate, but usually the top two in college football are exponentially better than everyone else. And that's just kind of how the talent breakdown goes when you look at recruits and recruiting rankings and such across the country. But finally, it seemed like we had four teams who were somewhat equally matched, although don't think the national championship is going to be very good uh, a week from yesterday uh, on the 9th. However, I'm going to appreciate the weekend that we had because, you know, you think you just think about all the storylines, right? I mean, first you have Jim Harbaugh, who's finally like, you know, second season beats uh, beats Ohio State, excuse me, second time in a row after we thought he never was going to beat them. And he's riding high. He's a touchdown favorite against a plucky TCU team that's wasn't even ranked to start the year and had five come from behind wins and were you know, all over the place and people were doubting them and they still made the top three, lost their conference title game. And then TCU goes out there and smacks Michigan in the mouth in a crazy back and forth game. And then the the next game, we didn't think anything would top Michigan TCU. The next game was arguably better. And the best collection of talent we'll see on a football field all season was Georgia, Ohio State. The matchup of just the pure talent of Georgia and the the just offensive execution of Ohio State and those wide receivers they have Marvin Harrison Jr., Emeka Abuka, I mean just unbelievable to play a CJ Stroud playing the game of his life. Um in just an overall just phenomenal weekend. I couldn't have been happier. I I really couldn't have. It's too bad Ohio State didn't win because it felt like Ohio State TCU had a chance to be a pretty evenly matched national title where we obviously sit here and think Georgia is much more talented than TCU is. And I'll tell you, Georgia has a chance to go back-to-back and win two straight national championships, but they always say there's luck involved in every championship run. Georgia's had some luck the last two years, as good as their roster's been. Last year's national championship, Jamison Williams, maybe the best player on the field for Alabama, goes out with an injury. Georgia wins. This year against Ohio State, Marvin Harrison, arguably the best player on the field, goes out with an injury in the fourth quarter. And Georgia comes back and wins. 
So Ohio State had a little bit of a tough break. Of course, Smith and Jigba wasn't playing. He's barely played all season. But Georgia, again, they're really good, but they caught some breaks. Well, sometimes that's just how it is. I mean, in sports, winning is partially luck. Not as much in college football because sometimes 2019 LSU, you're literally just that much better than every single other team, and it doesn't really matter what happens. But in the case of Georgia, yeah, you're right. And it seems like that's going to help them to a second consecutive national championships. Last time I checked Vegas, uh, two touchdown favorite for uh, for Georgia. So um, my expectations for Monday are low. To keep with the theme of the college football bowl games, really appreciative. The last traditional Rose Bowl was this weekend. The game was okay itself. Speaking of best players leaving with injury, Cam Rising looked so good again, the Utah quarterback, and then for the second consecutive Rose Bowl, tries to scramble and gets knocked out of the game, and Penn State goes on and wins uh, that game. So it was unfortunate, but the setting really, you know, Big Ten, Pac-12, such a, a historic matchup at that venue with the, on taking place on usually on New Year's Day, 2 o'clock, and it's just a beautiful setting. It's now going to be part of the college football playoff for as long as the playoff is a part of college football, which is unfortunate because it sort of it does take the history out of out of the game. And college football is really, you know, I'm not a huge tradition guy, but college football is a traditional sport, and I think that's what makes it great. But yeah, it was it was nice to see that that one final display of the Rose Bowl. I'm going to be honest; I didn't watch a whole lot of it. As you know, I just can't really get motivated about bowl season. Even the New Year's Six games. I love college football. My eyes are glued to the TV every Saturday during the regular season. Obviously, I watch the playoff and the national title. These bowl games just don't do it for me. It's just It just feels like you're playing for a participation trophy. And I know a lot of people feel differently, but that's why I can't personally get excited about bowl games. Would you watch it more if the bowls were cutting checks to the players to play in the games? I don't think so. I think it I think it takes an incentive for me to watch the game. AKA it has to feel like they're playing for something. AKA they're playing for a title. I think that's what it would take. I think the players deserve a check no matter what, but I think it's the incentive that does it for me. Yeah, I get that, which is why I know you're a bigger fan of the expanded playoff than I am personally. Don't think it balances out the sport that much more at all. It just makes for some entertaining early games. But regardless, that's the road we're going down, so we're going to accept it, and the Rose Bowl will be part of that. I'm excited for some of the potential matchups we're going to get. We're going to get some matchups we've never seen in the Rose Bowl, which I think is really intriguing. But, you know, it's now uh, the concept of, well, uh, to all the Pac-12 teams that have never made it, <clears throat> our school rival, to a Rose Bowl, they will now never, most likely never get that opportunity to go into a Rose Bowl game because there's no guarantee at all if you win the Pac-12, you're going to be in that game. So that's just a thought. Yeah, I think that's fair. My second speak your mind, uh, we hung out this week when you were back home from Oregon for the holidays. We watched those college football playoff games. We also went out in Seattle for New Year's Eve, which was fun. But the second speak your mind I have is the Uber surge on New Year's Eve is real. I mean, I know everybody talks about it every year, but every year you're reminded how bad it gets because when we were ready to leave and go back home eventually, not only did we spend probably close to an hour trying to wait for an Uber only to have a few of them just not show up because so many people were requesting Ubers. 
But there were also points where it said it was going to be about $100 to go two miles, which led the two of us to walking some of the distance off, including walking up some big hills in the middle of the night and finally waiting it out to call an Uber that was reasonably priced to go back home. Man, those Uber surges are real. Again, they talk about it every year, but when you actually live through it, it, it's more of a slap in the face. And the thing is, it's not even as bad as some of the ones I saw. I saw a video of Epcot in Orlando, part of the Disney World Park, that people went there to watch fireworks, and they were all trying to get home after the fireworks. And I swear there was probably 400 people waiting on a curb for their Ubers. I'm like, wow, that seems even worse than what we had to go through. But yeah, it's just, it is absolutely absurd how much those surcharges are. And it makes you think, well, maybe cabs weren't that bad, to be honest. Maybe they're not, because you know what cabs don't do? <laughs> There's no surcharge, not usually, not to that extent. It's like a, it's probably like a, a gradual percent up, but not like Uber where it's like, oh, if X amount of people are requesting in this area, I mean, we're literally going to quadruple the price. It's like, no, no, no. I did float to you, dog. We could have walked home. That would have been a long walk. Honestly, not that bad. I've done it. It's not that far. Well, maybe if it was the middle of the afternoon, it would have been okay. Yeah. Well, it's unfortunate. That could be an adventure for another time. I am one who is experienced in long, late-night walks, (laughs) as you know. But uh, this one, I think we uh, we avoided quite well. My final uh, speak your mind here today. I'm just happy the the NHL yesterday announced the Winter Classic is going to be at T-Mobile Park, New Year's Day 2024. I'm very much looking forward to that. It'll be the Kraken and the Golden Knights from T-Mobile Park. It does relate to this podcast. I went to my first Kraken game last week on Wednesday. Beautiful arena. But now they're going to get to play an outdoor hockey game at T-Mobile Park. And the incentive was, hey, we can build this rink under the roof in case it rains. And if it's a nice day on New Year's Day, we'll open the roof. And if not, well, we'll just close it like they do for all the baseball games. So I think that'll be super cool uh, and a really cool visual. And, dog, you could go hang out in the pen and watch that game, your favorite. Oh, there's another topic we haven't had a chance to talk about on this podcast yet. I will spend zero time in the pen ever. I'm good. Think of how cool it would be to watch an NHL game from the front row of the pen. You know, you just got your nice craft beer from a local Seattle brewery, talking with all the bros about, you know, Mariners prospects and how much you know about hockey. I mean, doesn't that just sound great? Yeah, as Ryan Divish joins everyone and starts blasting Pitbull. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. But I think it's awesome that the NHL is going to come out to a – you know, and host the two expansion teams and the, the the final two expansion teams in the NHL. So that'll that'll be super cool. And it will go. I know they played in Fenway yesterday, and I know it'll go significantly better when they than when they put it in Lake Tahoe a couple of years ago, and the ice couldn't stop melting. That was a funny visual, but I don't think they'll have that problem with a more climate controlled uh, place. And you're going to get the the chance to see people absolutely file into that place. That was something I didn't think about because when this got announced, I guess I didn't really understand what the big deal was since I never grew up much of a huge hockey fan. But then thinking about it more and the idea of it could be 40,000 people at this event would be pretty awesome. 
because in a normal arena, you're not getting 40,000. And plus it's outside. It's at a baseball stadium. Yeah, it's got a chance to be pretty cool. So I'm looking forward to it too. Wonder if we can help the Mariners afford a free agent. Hmm. 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 I would hope so. And maybe <laughs> one next year who pitches and hits. Oh, that's a good idea. Well, that'll just about wrap us up for this week's episode of the Marine Layer Podcast. If you want to continue to follow us, you've got a bunch of ways to do it. We're on Apple, we're on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and YouTube for the video version of our full podcast. You can get the audio forms on, again, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, video forms on YouTube. If you want to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube Shorts, and Twitter at Marine Layer Pod. For TJ Matthewson, this is Lyle Goldstein. Thanks as always for tuning in. We'll talk to you guys next week. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.